Good afternoon, church. If you don't know me, my name is Joshua Wall. I'm an elder here at Grace Church, and I'm always grateful and humbled to uh, be behind this pulpit. So let's pray. Lord, I pray for us today. We come to the fountain of living water, and we need a drink. You, Jesus, are the way and the truth and the life, and we know no one comes to the Father except through you. And so we pray today that we would see you. What words are my own take away and what words are yours make brighter and clearer? Show us today what you are building in this world and what you call us to be a part of. Amen. If you weren't here with us last week, Pastor Steve began a series entitled Church After COVID. The elders felt led that after two years of isolation and of difficulty, it's really important that we remind ourselves how important church is, both for what God is doing in this world and also for our own souls. Last week, Pastor Steve showed us that the church is not a meeting, but a community of believers who know and love each other and serve one another. This week, turn to Matthew 16, 13. Matthew 16, 13. If you are new to the Bible, it's the first chapter in the New Testament. Matthew 16, 13. When we look through the Bible... There are many metaphors and descriptions for the church. We see two churches. We see the church of the future, and we see the church of today. We see the triumphant church, like Akin read in Revelation 7, 9 through 12, a giant jeweled throne where the Lamb of God sits. As far as the eye can see, people, a multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping in unity, or Isaiah 2, where the nations are streaming to the city of Zion. And that as they're going, they're taking their weapons of war and they're beating them into plowshares because there's peace. There's no need for weapons of war. This triumphant church is comprised of all those who put their faith in Jesus. All those who came before us, all those who will come after us, eternally worshiping and enjoying God in the new heavens and the new earth. And yet today, we don't see that. We don't see an earth at peace. We see an earth arming itself with all manner of terrible technologies seeking for with one purpose to kill. We see social injustice. We see broken families. We even see churches arguing within their own denomination, some seeking political power, others uh, just giving into the culture, the church today is not complete. Globally, churches around the world are outposts of light. We are ambassadors living in embassies of God's kingdom in this hostile world. We are meant to look and act to love and serve as outposts of light. By nature, we are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Individually, as in Ephesians 2 and 6, we wage war, not against other people, not against sinners, but against the sin in our own life. As we rage against the sin in our lives, we become a people that display hope. 
We know it's not against others because in Matthew 13, 38, Jesus says the field is the whole world. And in Acts 1, 8, it, we are told to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So how does the world go from these embassies of light to a church triumphant where there's peace? The title of this sermon in this series is what is Jesus's plan A for the world? What is Jesus's plan A? And the subtitle is there is no plan B. On the third day, when Jesus rose from the grave, he had in his possession all glory, all majesty, all dominion, all authority. And there is nothing in this world, no sin, no distress, no darkness, no devil that can thwart the will of God through the person of Jesus. He has been working his divine agenda from the beginning of creation to the cross and from the cross until it's finished. When the father declares it and he needs no backup. So turn your Bible to Matthew 16 and we're going to read verses 13 to 19. And if you hear just one thing today, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Jesus's plan A for this world is to build a spiritual house of worship, the church, not constructed by stones, but by people who put their faith in him. Faith only given by the Father. So verses 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." So we begin the story, verse 13, in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Just to set the stage, it's kind of like a movie where it jumps from one scene to another. We were traveling around with Jesus. He was doing all kinds of miracles and teachings. And then all of a sudden they jump and they're in a new city. Caesarea Philippi, it's a Roman city north of the Sea of Galilee, a very polytheistic city full of Gentiles and Romans worshiping all kinds of gods. Very similar to where we live today. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So first, Jesus kind of prompts his disciples with a question. And this is a really interesting question. Who do people say the son of man is? It's a reference to Daniel 7, that behold, with clouds of heaven coming down, like a son of man, this ancient of days that's going to come and establish a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve this son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and it should never pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. But also Jesus had previously referred to himself as the son of man. And even in Mark, he, the, this story is, who do people say that I am? His disciples have been traveling around with him. Jesus has been this great spectacle. He has been this spectacle 
that crowds and crowds of people have come to see his miracles, to touch his shirt so that they might possibly be healed, to hear his preaching that with authority, he stumped these great religious leaders, the people of the day. He is this great spectacle. And we also know Jesus isn't just asking this to kind of like get some polling numbers or, you know, see how many followers he has on social. He, we know he can read minds. He, he often says back to the Pharisees what they're thinking. So no, he's, he's asking this question to prompt the disciples. And so they answer, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And it's actually pretty close. It wasn't like they said, Batman, Banksy, Shaq, you know, I mean, they said something quite close. No, they give an answer that's most likely based on the Old Testament. The people of God were awaiting this great prophet, this prophet who would be a great leader like Moses. We see in Deuteronomy 18 through 15 that there's this successive line of prophets who hear from God like Moses. And one day there would be the great prophet. We see uh, Elijah who brings power and justice in Malachi 4. A day is coming when God will lay waste to all evildoers and the righteous will rejoice, which is signaled by a prophet like Elijah. So yes, the crowds are close, but they're wrong. He would be like Moses. He would be like Elijah, but he would be different. He would usher in a new covenant, not like the old, not of the law, but a law written on their hearts and a flatness that they would all equally know God. Even though they knew the scriptures and even then they knew the pattern to look for, and even though they were here with Jesus, hearing him preach, watching him heal the sick, experiencing his miracles, they couldn't see him clearly. And we'll come back to this. But the reason is that sin clouds their ability to see Jesus clearly. And sin clouds all of our ability to see Jesus clearly. So verses 15 to 17. Jesus moves from kind of a general question about the Son of Man to a much more personal question. And he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And I want to pause here for a second. There may be some here that have never asked themselves that question. Who do you say that Jesus is personally? Who do you personally think that Jesus is? There may be some here that don't know at all. That's why you came. You've heard a few stories. You've heard some things about church. And you have come here to find out who Jesus is. And if that is you, friend, we welcome you here. We are glad you are here. We are praying desperately that you would see and you would hear and you would know and experience Jesus for yourself. And there's others here who may have grown up in church. You may know all the stories. You may have even led inductive Bible studies. You may know lots of answers about what Jesus is like from other people. But you haven't made up your mind yourself. And let me tell you, our relationship with God, it can't be outsourced to anyone. It is between you and Jesus. And your relationship with Jesus centers on who you believe he is. Either group, Jesus is asking you today, like all of us, who do you say that I am? 
And your answer determines whether you spend an eternity in perfect, in his perfect, beautiful presence, or you spend an eternity, eternity in his absence. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter being the rash one, he speaks up for the 12. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Simon Peter confesses rightly. Jesus is not just a prophet. He is the prophet. He is the long-awaited Messiah that will give them all a new heart and a new, a new heart of flesh. He is the high priest who will offer atonement for them. He is the anointed king that will inaugurate this new kingdom. But more than that, Simon Peter realizes something different. Jesus is the son of man, but he is also the son of God. Though he is human like you and me, he is as divine as Yahweh. Peter answered correctly. And Jesus answers Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the first question we need to ask is why can Simon Peter see Jesus clearly and the crowds cannot? This is a good question because Jesus answers this for us very easy. It's the Father who is in heaven and revealed it to him, not flesh and blood. So a follow-up question and maybe a better question is, what does it mean that flesh and blood cannot reveal Jesus? And the answer that Jesus is reminding Peter is that it is only a supernatural act of God that allows our broken bodies and our sinful minds to rightly see Jesus. There's even an implication for us today. We can know God's word and still not see Jesus. We can even be experts in the contents or the genres, and we can be so close and yet miss the important truths. The people of Israel thought that he was a prophet, but they did not see him as the son of God. Our Muslim friends, they see Jesus as a great prophet, but they do not see him as the prophet. The truth that our sin clouds our thinking is consistent throughout the whole Bible. We see this theme over and over and over again. We cannot get to God. He has to come to us. Hear what the Bible speaks about us before Christ. Ephesians 2.5, we were dead in our trespasses. We weren't rational beings. We weren't confused. We didn't have a pros and cons list we were weighing. We were dead. 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded everyone from seeing the light of God in the face of Jesus. So we're dead, we're blind. Romans 1, 18 through 19, God's invisible attributes, his divine nature has been plainly shown to man through creation and through conscience, but because of our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. We want and we desire and we crave our sin. So anything that tells us otherwise, we suppress it because we want nothing, we want nothing to interfere with us getting our sin. So we're dead, we're blind, and we're un we, we willingly suppress God's truth. If God does not intervene, it is impossible in our state to rightly see Jesus. It is only by the grace of the Father to reveal to all of us and to all the saints who Jesus is. Sin clouds our ability to see Jesus rightly, but God in his mercy shines through the cloud. 
If you are here today and you see Jesus as beautiful and as good and it is right, it is only because the Father first revealed it to you. It is only because in your dark hearts, God said, let there be light. And Jesus is reminding Peter of this. You got the answer right, Peter. All these others, they don't see it yet. You see it, but there's nothing for you to boast about. It is only mercy that you see it and they don't see it yet. So then Jesus continues now with two powerful and what have proven to be very debated statements. Two statements that reveal for us Jesus' plan A for the world. Jesus is communicating his plan to move all of creation to the new heavens and the new earth with worshipers from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered in joy. Verses 18 and 19. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the second question we need to ask is what rock does Jesus intend to build his church? And like I said, this is debated ad nauseum. And honestly, for the purpose of this sermon, I kind of want to skip ahead because if I don't, we'll spend so much time on this and so much time that we don't have. So if you're interested in having this conversation, I know Pastor Steve and I and other people are happy to grab coffee with you and to talk about these different debates. But for this, what I believe is the most convincing argument to what Jesus meant is Peter's own words. So how Peter understood it, how Peter interpreted what Jesus said, I think is the most convincing argument. So that being said, Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2. And I want you to keep your finger in Matthew 16. We're going to come back to it. Keep your finger. So turn to 1 Peter 2, and we're going to read 1 through 12. It's a a big chunk of verses to talk about, two verses, but I think it's really going to help us. So what we're doing is we're letting the Bible interpret the Bible. We are not trying to be the experts. We are letting Peter tell us what Jesus meant when Jesus was talking to Peter. So fast forward just to catch you up on 1 Peter. Fast forward years after Jesus' death, the church has spread out from Jerusalem in every direction by both the apostles, but mainly through unnamed Christians. We're going to come back to that. Peter is writing to to the universal church, yes, but he's specifically writing to those who are believers in the diaspora, those who have been exiled and spread out all over Asia Minor, most of which are facing regular persecution He is writing to specific congregations and assemblies spread throughout the region. Verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he begins by comparing these new believers to infants. Why? They are new in Christ. They still resemble their old sinful ways, the the ways they were before they tasted that the Lord is good. And he also adds in here, if, you know, I think it's important to show that we must see Jesus rightly as our treasure. So he's, he's kind of saying, okay, you're still resembling the old ways, even though you're new in Christ, 
Verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. So look at Peter's language here. As you come to Jesus, you are a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. You are a living stone. I am a living stone. We are all living stones being built up into this spiritual house. So before we go any further, Peter does not understand himself to be the rock. He understands himself to be one stone and all of us to be one stone being built up into this spiritual house. Verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of, in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's using Old Testament language here. For as it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter's connecting this Old Testament imagery and these Old Testament prophecies with what he is experiencing after Jesus has died and resurrected and rose, risen from the grave. And as he has seen the church sort of spread in every direction, he is seeing that what was prophesied is now coming to be fulfilled. Jesus was, is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And now Peter is on the other side. Jesus died. He rose again from the dead. He ascended and the gospel has gone out. Christ is building his church as he said he would. And Peter sees the church as the new temple of God. It is not made up of physical stones, but living stones. It is ornamented not with gold or silver, but with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Jesus is the cornerstone of this new temple of God. And you either see Jesus as precious and believe, or you do not believe. The church is built on Jesus. The rock that Jesus is referring to is not Peter himself, but Peter's confession. When Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus says, yes, Peter, you got it right. You are correct. You got it right because my father told you. My father revealed it. I am the cornerstone. You did not stumble. You see me and, I, and you will not be put to shame. It is on Peter's confession of Jesus and all of our confession of Jesus that he builds his church. Jesus is the first, he's the cornerstone, and we are all living stones being built up in this monument to worship God. In the Old Testament, the temple was where heaven kissed earth. And in the New Testament, the church is where heaven kisses earth. So keep your finger in 1 Peter 2, and let's flip back to Matthew 16. Let's look at this second kind of powerful, kind of debated statement that reveals Jesus' plan A for the world. Verse 19. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the third question is, what are the keys to the kingdom? And yeah, I mean, it makes me as uncomfortable as it makes you to think that man is handed the keys to the kingdom, right? So like before, we need to go to 1 Peter to see how Peter rightly understood this. 1 Peter 2, 9. So Jesus, again, was building a new temple made of living stones, which all those who confess Christ are a part of. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people not for his a people for his own possession. So again, all descriptions once used of Israel, Peter's now applying to the church, both Jews, Gentiles, and don't miss this. Why are we all those things? Why are we this spiritual house being built up? Verse nine, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, and now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the keys to the kingdom are the gospel. The keys, as Peter understands it, is two-parted. Okay, the gospel is two-parted. Verse 9, to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So proclamation, there's a proclamation happening. And two, representation, verses 11 and 12. Because the church is Jesus on earth. Our good deeds should reflect Jesus and his goodness in such a way to the lost world that people will turn from their sins and glorify God before he returns. So what you do at work, how we parent at the park, how you speak to the people working on your car, that's my sin this week, how you gossip at Starbucks, the gospel is in our mouth, and the gospel is transforming our actions. And together, they are the keys to the kingdom. Jesus builds his church, his temple through us. What is done today and tomorrow will have eternal repercussions. What is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. What is done today will be forever, both for the joy of those who see Christ and the horror of those who reject him. And please hear this. God reveals Jesus through the Holy Spirit. God saves. But we have been given the keys. We are a part of this. We are responsible to be his ambassadors on this earth. All of us. If you are in Christ, you are not exempt from fighting sin and proclaiming joy. So let me summarize all of this into one kind of statement. What is God's plan A for the world? God's plan A. God's plan A for the world is to build a spiritual house, the church, which Jesus is the cornerstone. All who have faith in Jesus are united by God 
And he reveals Jesus to the world through us proclaiming and living out his marvelous life. Let me say that one more time. God's plan A for this world is to build a spiritual house, the church, which Jesus is the cornerstone. All who have faith in Jesus are united by God and he reveals who Jesus is. He reveals who Jesus is to the world through us proclaiming and living out his marvelous life. And I skipped over one of the best parts, Matthew 16, 18. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Everywhere the church is scattered, it multiplies. It may be really small for decades, like in Afghanistan, but eventually it will explode. No matter persecution, no matter the gates of hell raging against it, no matter any darkness that tries to overcome it, it will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We see that in the scriptures. Jesus started with a small group of disciples in Jerusalem, fishermen, women, tax collectors. And when you look at the church 2,000 years later, it is only because Jesus built the church that we would go from a handful of people in an upper room awaiting the Holy Spirit to come to a movement that would sweep over the entire world. The church is now and will forever be the primary instrument God uses to save the world. So because of that, I want us to end with one last question as a means of application. If the church is now and forever the primary instrument God uses to save the world, what is my role or purpose as Jesus builds the church? What is my role or purpose as Jesus builds the church? And we have many but three roles that Jesus gives us as living stones. I just want to highlight three roles, okay? Number one is to fight sin, fight sin. We are sojourners and exiles. Now that we are in Christ, the world is not our home. How we live our lives does reflect to the world around us what God is like. And again, I am not saying that we have to be perfect, In fact, there is no perfection on this side of heaven. And I'm not calling for some kind of moralism. Look at 1 Peter 2, how he frames the passage, okay? You are a chosen race. You don't do that. You are a royal priesthood. You don't do that. You are a holy nation. You don't do that. You are a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, and now you are God's people. Once you had no mercy, now you received mercy. Our job is not to reflect perfection. Our job is to reflect gratefulness and love because God first offered us mercy. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, you may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We fight sin because A, it wages war against our souls. Sin doesn't fight fair. It promises you joy and it robs you of your treasure. We wage war against sin because it first wages war against us. If we aren't killing sin, it is killing us, Johnny Owen. And B, our good deeds do reflect to everyone around us what Jesus is like. When Peter talks about Jesus being the rock of stumbling, the rock of offense, we want to let our lives reflect Christ in such a way that people stumble 
because they reject the gospel, not because they reject our poor reflection of the gospel as rude, as mean, as selfish people. We want them to reject the gospel, not the messengers of the gospel. Number two, our role and purpose, number two, is to love your covenant community by giving your talents, your resources, and your spiritual gifts. Love your covenant community by giving your talents, resources, and spiritual gifts. We as a church and as individuals in the church want to look more like Jesus. We want our church to be more biblically centered in our theology and our good deeds. We want to reflect Jesus's heart, which is why we desire to have this cultural, this culturally diverse expression of God, which we do. That's one of the best things about the UAE. But in order to do that, we need everyone. We don't need a monocultural stage. We need everyone, all tongues, tribes, and nations to be a part of this. Christ is building his church in Abu Dhabi, but he has chosen you and equipped you with talents, with resources, and with spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the church. This is also why at Grace Church, we have strong convictions about how we organize ourselves. We strive to be a thoroughly biblical church because the keys to the kingdom are the gospel, and we want to give the clearest display of Jesus to our city. We want to grow both in our knowledge of God and our love. So the Bible says we're a new community, a new family, and so we want to regularly gather together for prayer and worship, teaching, and together we want to baptize, we want to take the Lord's Supper. We need each other to the point out, we need each other to point our hearts to Christ. We need each other to hold each other accountable for the sin in our lives, and we need to offer, we need each other to offer comfort to one another, and we need each other to bear one another's burdens. We need to regularly be together. It's why we believe in church membership. Covenanting together to love and serve one another. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is why we believe in an autonomous governing church. The church members vote on all major matters, including the budget and the leadership. We are all living stones, equal. It's why we believe the church was given two offices, elders and deacons. We see in 1 Timothy 3. The elders are to protect and oversee, and there needs to be a plurality of elders which lead, teach, shepherd, and oversee the administration of the church. Some elders are staff. Some elders have normal jobs, but the elders are led. The elders lead. We also see the church to be encouraged by lead servant deacons. They set the bar for the rest of us. They're not perfect, but they set the bar in how they serve the church through practical areas of ministry. So wherever you are in the church, wherever you are in the church, love Christ's church by pushing in further. We are coming out of COVID. Push in further. If you have just attended a few times, you're still on the outside, join us. Become a member of Grace Church. Join our covenant community so we can know you and pray for you and serve you. If you're a member but not in a home group, join one. We have one almost every night of the week now. And it shrinks the church into a small community that you can do life with. 
If you are a member but not serving, serve. Give your life away. Work with our kids. Come help me with youth. Women find other women to disciple. Older, wise, this is especially for me, older, wiser members who have had families help us who are younger parents and need lots of help. Join the band. Help us with social media. Give your life away. If you have been here and served a long time, come talk to the elders about being a deacon. Help us set the bar. And maybe there's some here that feel called to be an elder, but they haven't wanted to come forward. Come talk to one of the elders and we'll have a conversation. Wherever you are in the church, push harder in. Help us reflect Christ in this city. Third role and purpose. Share the gospel. When you look at the church 2,000 years later, it is only by Jesus building the church. And for the vast majority of church history, he has built it by unnamed men and women sharing their faith as they were scattered about their lives. We're scattered in our homes, in neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our hobbies, at our kids' schools, Some of us go to Gambia. Some of us go to labor camps. Many of us will be here for two and a half, two to five years, and we'll go back to our home countries or we'll go to another expat country. Wherever we go, we are the aroma of Christ to a lost and dying world. And we must be people that look like Jesus and joyfully proclaim his work in our lives. Michael Green, who wrote one of my all-time favorite books in Christianity called Evangelism in the Early Church, He studied the first hundred years of the church and this sort of explosion of churches that we haven't seen like we haven't seen since. And one of his primary conclusions was not because they had great leaders, and they did. We still read all their writings today. They had great leaders, but it wasn't because they had great leaders. And it wasn't because they were more equipped. In fact, they were worse equipped. There was tons of heresies happening. Uh, Most of them were uneducated. It wasn't because they had great leaders. It wasn't because they were more equipped. It was the fact that the primary reason the gospel exploded was because every single Christian felt a deep-rooted responsibility to take the gospel to the people around them. He concludes that it wasn't trained preachers or evangelists, but rather informal conversations in the homes and the shops of those individuals. He says it was the zeal and the dedication of ordinary Christians who found Jesus their treasure and wanted to share that with others. Think about what Jesus is saying again. The gospel is the keys to the kingdom. You have with you the keys to the kingdom. That should radically empower us to share the gospel with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. We are not just telling them about religion. You have in your possession the keys to the kingdom. Yes, God absolutely has to reveal Jesus to them. He absolutely has to reveal Jesus to them. We already established that, that it's God who reveals Jesus through the Holy Spirit. But he reveals it when you are sharing with them. When you open the word with them, it is in that act is when God typically reveals it. Look at 1 Peter 2.10. Look at his simple gospel presentation. I was not a people and now I 
have a people. I did not have mercy, and now I have mercy. There are so many people in this city that would love and desperately want to experience true community and to desire to experience mercy from God. Let me end with this quote. Andrew Fuller, in the gospel worthy of all acceptance, he writes, the gospel is the greatest overflow of divine goodness. The gospel is the greatest overflow of divine goodness. If the gospel is the greatest overflow of divine goodness, then the church is the display of that divine goodness to the world. So we fight sin, we love our covenant community, and we share the good news. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I, uh, I need your help in fighting sin and in having boldness. We pray desperately that this challenge that comes from Peter would challenge us. Lord, we pray that you change us to be more like your son and that we do feel this responsibility for the keys to the kingdom. Thank you for this church, which is an embassy in a dark place. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's raise.